Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH News' Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kedzis. Hey, Peter. Hey, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Peter and I had with Joan Venaki, the Boston Globe columnist and editorial board member. We talked about Governor Charlie Baker facing some unusually sharp criticism over the state's vaccine rollout. Also about Marty Walsh and the state of Boston as he prepares to leave the mayor's job and head to Washington to be Joe Biden's Secretary of Labor. Peter Kansas, why did you want to catch Joan for this particular conversation? I mean, Joan's columns are always great. Um, I think she's been on a real roll. She's written three terrific, very insightful columns about Mayor Walsh and the state of the city of Boston and what his exit may mean for the city. And um, she's always good on Charlie Baker because um, while she has no animus towards Baker, um, neither has she ever succumbed to the Baker charm. So I thought, yikes, he has a great opportunity to get one of you know the Globe's best columnists talking about two of the big headline makers in the state. And here we are. And here is that conversation with me, Peter Kadzis, and Joan Venaki of the Boston Globe. Have you two seen the images coming out of Danvers? It's a shit show. I, I retweeted video from Karen Regal at WBZ and Abby Nisgoda at NBC10. And they had shots inside and outside of these long lines, people who've shown up. People don't know if they need an appointment or not. Uh, there was a rumor that if you, I think that they had extra vaccine and uh, if you showed up but didn't have an appointment, you could go ahead and get a shot. And that appears to have been unfounded. So I only ask it because it, it you know, it is yet another iteration of the question that I think, Joan, you floated. I know you talked about it on Beat the Press last week about whether the Baker Teflon is starting to wear a little bit thin. So. I think I saw your tweet about it. It seems like, you know, yeah, the bait for the first time, the Teflon's getting scuffed up a little bit. And it's just sort of hard to wrap your head around why on this it's supposed to be a specialty, right? Management and healthcare. And for some reason, it has proven to be problematic, as they say. Why do you think this would be the area that he would stumble and stumble badly? You know, I really don't know. It, it's to me, it seems like a question of um, who's in charge of it. Is it, I'm not to cast aspersions on any particular person, but it seems like he has one go-to person on everything since the pandemic started and it's Mary Lou Sutters. She's been at his side since last March. Um, I don't know, maybe she, she's stretched too thin. I mean, who's in charge of all these things? Should he have a vaccination czar or something like that? Um, I, I think it's a really good question. I, I don't know the answer to what really screwed up here. And also just one other thing, one of Charlie's, I think his biggest weakness is his inability to just say, you know what, we got this wrong, we need to fix it. And he, that, he just hasn't been able to say that. And if he did, I think people would appreciate that. Has there ever been a time where the governor has said, we dropped the ball on X? And we're going to rectify that? If he has, I missed it. I mean, whether it's state police, RMV, 
any of the sort of little annoyances, scandals that have happened along the way. He's always managed to make it somebody else's responsibility and kind of docked accountability. And given that he's the CEO of the state and supposedly this, you know, this top manager, you would think at a certain point he would say, this one's on me, we got to get it fixed. I don't think Massachusetts has done a good job. And that means Charlie Baker hasn't done a good job. Now, having said that, looking at the states that have done a reasonable job, of the top 15 states in the United States, there's only one big state, Connecticut, that's in the top 15. Smaller states like Alaska, West Virginia, North Dakota, New Mexico, Utah, they're the top five. Um, this is proving to be a very difficult thing. And when you think back to um, the very early days of COVID, um, uh, when we were all still referring to it as the coronavirus, Trump was coming under, you know, tremendous criticism, at least on Twitter. And I remember Nate Silver tweeted out saying, look, I don't disagree with anything anyone's saying, but there's no place in the industrialized Western world that is doing a good job with this. Um, I think there are a number of reasons to help us understand this. One, we don't have a centralized healthcare system. I'm talking now about vaccines in particular. The fact that everything is decentralized really makes for a mess. You know, compare the situation about schools and all the anxiety around schools with all the anxiety around vaccines. Again, two very decentralized systems. I am surprised that Baker hasn't done a better job with this. I think in political terms though, these are early days. In come July, assuming we get our act together, um, it may be a distant memory. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, Jones paper, the Globe, yesterday has a headline for Baker the Fixer, a challenge like no other. Excellent story. For anyone who hasn't seen it, they should get online and read it. Then today on the front page is maybe there's a story saying maybe we're turning the corner. It's very complicated. And I have to say, personally, I find it maddening that Baker hasn't taken more responsibility. The closest he has come is when he said, you know, uh, several times at his pressers, look, it's going to take a long time to get everyone vaccinated. You know, he's good at describing how tough the situation is, but he has to take the responsibility, I think. Although if anyone can slip away from it, it's Jolly Baker. But what, one more thing in this, just a personal thing. My, my wife's um, cousins in New Hampshire, you know, they're 85 and 90, both have really serious health issues as many much older people do. They're not getting vaccinated until April. I bring that up only to say that it's a mess everywhere. You know, look, 
this isn't the United States that won the Second World War. <laughs> We're in many ways, in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways, we are incapable of collective action as a nation. Um, and to me, as someone with three sons, I find that depressing because it makes me worry about the world they are inheriting. Joan, do you want to, my inclination, you're the guest of honor, so I want to talk less and have you talk more. Um, do you think Peter's going too easy on Baker there, or do you think that his disclaimers have merit. I think he's going a little bit easy on him. You know, it's true. I mean, Trump passed the buck to the states. I, I think that was uh, Trump's. He he didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't know how to handle it. Maybe he maybe it was a, a, a you know problem too big for one person to solve, and he shouldered too much blame. Whatever. He passed the buck to the state. And again, our expectations for Charlie Baker are so high because that's what his brand is supposed to be. His brand is supposed to be manager. His brand is supposed to be following the science and the data. And maybe that's a little bit of the problem that he's so into the data, so into the numbers that that makes him sort of less flexible and less able to pivot and to respond quickly to things. Um, from what I've heard, and I mean, no expert on this, he was, mostly concerned that we'd have enough vials of vaccine. So he was worried about, so he set up, it set it up so that um, the, you know, it would be dispersed, it would be able to be dispersed to people. That they, they got the vaccines, but they really didn't have a process in place to get it quickly into people's arms. So that seemed like that was, you know, sort of a, a misstep from the beginning. Um, but again, I mean, it's not like I don't have sympathy for the guy. He's been under pressure. He's been working 24 seven since March. Um, these are discouraging times. Um, the news has been bad. You know, it's gone up and down, but whether it's nursing homes, um, you know, whether it was a horrendous situation at the Holyoke Soldiers Home, um, there's, there's been a lot to deal with. But again, the expectations for him have been high. And quite honestly, you know, you mentioned yesterday's Globe story and today's. I was um, taken aback by today's that suddenly we're turning a corner after a story that said um, he, he had not done as, as good a job as he should. It seemed like a little bit of a little bit of spin out there. Oh, I would guess more than a little bit of spin. Mm -hmm. I'm sure someone got in the hall, the, the the phone to to someone at your shop and said, "Hey, what about this?" I'd so, say somebody at his shop said, what about this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> they don't have that. That actually reminds me of a tweet that you sent, Joan, uh, a couple days ago. Mm. I think Chris Lisinski from State House News Service was describing members of the Baker administration taking issue with the Globe editorial, saying the state needs more aggressive and visionary leadership on transportation. Chris was detailing the complaints that Baker administration members were making about that editorial. And you hopped on and pointed out in a very matter of fact way that the Globe editorial board had sought the administration's input for the piece and they didn't wanna to talk to you before it ran. Am I describing that correctly? 
you are, and I probably shouldn't have hopped on because it was an editorial, not, not a column. Um, but as you know, a lot of people know, um, columnists now write editorials as well. So I had a uh, sort of a personal investment and interest in that one. And I went to the Baker administration and said, listen, I haven't written a word of this editorial yet. Um, I'd like to talk to somebody about what the agenda is, what the vision is post Stephanie Pollack. And they just basically said, you know, no comment, they weren't interested. So I don't know, um, you know, I, I'm guessing that the T guy, Joe Ayala, didn't know that. Um, but I just felt, I just had a visceral reaction that, hey, I wanted to set the record straight on that because we asked them, we gave them the opportunity and they declined. And they do that all the time. I mean, I don't know what your, your um, uh, kind of experiences with the Baker press people, but um, and I attributed to when you work for governor who has such high favorability ratings, you don't really need the press that much and you don't need to sort of humor and stroke the press. Um, so I, they, they usually slap me down pretty quickly and don't really give me very much when I ask for anything. Now, when you're in a time of trouble, um, or, or, you know, when things look a little bit darker, you could use a little love in the media. It might be a good chance to um, treat people a little bit differently. I thought it was great that you hopped on to point out that the paper had tried to talk to them for this piece and they didn't weigh in. I think that's really important information. Telling in and of itself, I would say my experience, and I don't work with them as closely as Mike Dean, our statehouse guy. I don't think I talk to them as much as Peter does they're capable of being very responsive and very helpful. My thought when I, when I saw you tweet that, my thought was something that has occurred to me before. And I think of this as another signature trait of the governor's. I don't think he likes to explain himself. He wants, I think, everyone to assume that he's gonna do the right thing for the right reasons. He's gonna be thoughtful, try to do the best he can. And if he's asked to talk us through his reasoning on anything, I think he bristles at it. We're talking on a day when the governor gave a press conference in which Sharman Sacchetti from WCVB tried to get the governor to explain, well, why is it that the National Guard is needed now to help with COVID vaccinations when it wasn't needed before? And my understanding is the governor's response was basically, the guard is needed now because the guard is needed now. And they weren't needed before because they weren't needed before. And it all reminds me of myself when I get in a grumpy mood with my kids and they wanna know why I'm doing something or why I'm not doing something. And you hit that point sometimes as a parent where you just wanna say, well, because, because I'm the parent, because I'm the mom, or because I'm the dad. I don't know how well it works on a domestic front. I don't think it works well when you are the elected leader of a polity. Right. It kind of reminds me, I remember that once upon a time there was an old Charlie Baker and a new Charlie Baker. Um, he was kind of a, a grumpier version when he first ran. And then he got a, a sort of a more of a, kinder, gentler Charlie Baker emerged. Now he's halfway into his second term and he's also in the middle of a pandemic. 
and he seems a little grumpier. Now I'm saying that looking at him from a distance. I'm not going to the press conferences. The last one I went to was in March, quite honestly, I see him on TV and I do see him look a little snappish. Um, and I think that rubs off, does rub off in his press people. And you know, just to get back to the editorial versus a column, listen, I've, I've written some tough columns about him. If they don't want to respond to me, if they think like, what's the point of talking to Joan Vanaki, I get that. I've, you know, I've been doing this for a while, but a Globe editorial is usually on some policy issue. Um, it's the voice of the Globe. Um, we do a lot of reporting before they, uh, they're edited, they're double edited, they're vetted. Um, it just seems like that's a good opportunity if somebody offers it to you to say, okay, um, let's talk, let's, let's remind you what we've done. Let's lay out where we think we're going. I mean, if you wanna do that, this would be the perfect opportunity to do it. In this case, they chose not to. I don't disagree with what Joan's saying or what's implicit in your point of view, Adam. I just think that I don't think the public views it the same way. The public is not as interested in the granularity of all this. Uh, I'm being cold when I say that. I'm not defending Baker. I think that especially since the advent of social media and our own, uh, our being our profession, our, our profession being rooted in the moment, the public, the civilians don't share our preoccupations. I think it's as simple as that. I wish I heard more about what the governor speaks. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes flabbergasted when there are examples like Jones of, you know, asking for, is there someone who can explain the big picture? But the public, at least so far, clearly doesn't react the same way. Well, and I totally agree. I mean, as I said, he hasn't, you know, his favorabilities have been high. He's a very popular governor. He still is, even through this relative rough patch. All I was saying that is if you're in a little bit of a slump, um, now might be a good opportunity to, um, you know, be a little less grumpy or tell your people to, uh, you know, get someone to talk about what the transportation agenda is post Pollock. Now he probably had no idea I even asked. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not laying that on, on Charlie Baker and they certainly right. have the right to talk to whoever they want to at whatever point. It only became an issue because it became an issue at that um, fiscal control board meeting. I think they led off the meeting complaining about the Globe editorial. And we were thrilled because we haven't <laughs> if anybody reads the editorials. I, mean. I am tempted to ask both of you to weigh in on Ben Downing launching his gubernatorial candidacy. If people want to understand Downing, they should go online and read the Berkshire Eagles coverage of him. You know, he represented Pittsfield for 10 years or, you know, the, the greater Berkshire area. Uh, he's the hometown boy. It's very favorable coverage, but that notwithstanding, it's a very full picture of who he is. He's a goo-goo's goo-goo. Um, he's passionate about the environment. He's very smart on clean energy. Um, I was somewhat I have to say surprised. I, I wondered, you know, the day he announced um, groups like the Blue Mask Group on Twitter, the progressives, 
you know, gave him a tremendous boost. Um, he's a smart, intelligent guy. The smartest thing he's done is to make it clear that he said, look, the Democrats should not try to demonize Baker as some, you know, Trump Republican. Um, Massachusetts, they should make a simple case that Massachusetts can do better than it's doing now. I think he's a smart guy. I think what he has to worry about, um, perhaps, is does um, Harvard professor Danielle Allen get into the race? Um, she's a very attractive candidate. What she's yet to prove she's, is, is how good she is on a granular your level, you know, talking about mass transit as opposed to the philosophy of democracy. But she strikes me as being as great a public speaker as Deval Patrick, who as listeners know, I think is better than Barack Obama. But when she talks, she has that Clinton-esque, Bill Clinton-esque ability to make someone feel that she's talking directly to them. Well, very. I'll be very quick. Um, I've only spoken to him a few times, so I really don't know him well. I think he, you know, starts out with kind of a name recognition problem. Plus, coming from Western Massachusetts. Um, that being said, I mean, to me, the more interesting question is: Is Charlie Baker running again? We don't know that. Um, you know, from what I hear, he's not decided, and he's sort of at the moment he's kind of in an interesting spot. He's still he's be he's beaten up from the right by the crazy Massachusetts Republicans. Um, for the first time, the Democrats sense a little weakness and they have, you know, kind of, you know, taking him on more than they had in the past. Um, he's got this pandemic, you know, he's got a vaccine rollout that people are griping about. He might wake up tomorrow morning and say, I've had enough. I don't want to be governor again. In which case, Ben Downing and the woman you mentioned um, are a lot more viable. I just don't think Ben Downing beats Charlie Baker. I mean, that's my immediate instinct. I'm not even sure if Maura Healy beats Charlie Baker. Assuming that Charlie Baker makes it through a Republican primary. Right, does Charlie Baker beat Jeff Deal? Yeah. Let's talk Marty Walsh. And Joan, I'd love to get your take, maybe followed by Peter's thoughts on your take about where Boston stands as Marty Walsh apparently is destined to just Ruse into being Joe Biden's Secretary of Labor. How is he going to be leaving the city? Well, his confirmation hearing was a love fest. It seems like Republicans and Democrats can't wait to have a, a labor guy, um, you know, in their midst. So yeah, he is he is on cruise control. But interestingly, I, I don't think anybody, um, everybody understands why Marty Walsh is saying yes to this opportunity. I don't think anybody holds that against him. But he is leaving Boston in kind of a lurch. Um, specifically involving, you know, COVID-19 and what the economic recovery plan is going to be. If you talk to people in the business community, they're waiting for some leadership. I mean, they're waiting for someone to pull them together. Now, maybe they should be lead the leaders, but I, I think there's just a sense of they didn't really expect him to leave, and now they don't know what lies ahead, and there's kind of uncertainty. So there's that. And the other thing which I've written about a little bit um, is the story of the departure of police commissioner Willie Gross and just sort of the whole mess that's come out of that. The, the guy that replaced him is now on leave after two days on the job because of some 20-year-old allegation. 
involving alleged domestic abuse. So that's kind of a mess. And I don't think Walsh has really been very forthright or come clean on that at all. I, I, I'm just, you know, uh, blue skying it here. Uh, Micho Spring, you know, a key player in the Kevin White administration, for those of us, you know, old enough to remember when Kevin White was mayor. She was one of Ke Kevin White's top people. She's head of the Chamber of Commerce right now. Uh, not head, she's the chairwoman of the board. Um, she's a very able woman and could certainly be a big help in planning any recovery. Now, having said that, let's move on to the police. If my information is correct, if Walsh had run for reelection, and been reelected, he would have named um, White to be commissioner. He probably would have waited a suitable amount of time to uh, replace Gross. But you know, Gross is very much a um, um, a PR style commissioner. White was um, uh, Marty Walsh's brains, if you will, on the uh, police reform commission. And White has a very solid reputation within the department as being a, a good strategic thinker. Gross is a tactician. He's a day by day. And he was a street cop. I mean, I don't know Gross, but over many years of reporting, I've seen him in action, you know, at murder scenes, at demonstrations, at public disturbances. That's his strength. White has a more strategic vision. And um, the reason it happened so quickly, I believe, again, if my information is correct, it's this talk of Gross running for mayor was getting everyone a little nervous. Not that he was going to run. Uh, Gross himself never floated that. He allowed other people to float it. And the idea was to get White in as commissioner before Walsh left. The reason being is that an acting mayor cannot remove, you know, a top department head like that, you know, without some cause. So the thinking would be that, you know, White would have several months to establish himself and Walsh's guy would end up staying on. Now, about the complaints of um, domestic violence, how do I phrase this? Don't be surprised if in the course of the investigation, as a result of the investigation that the mayor has audited into this situation, that um, White's wife will come for, might come forward and explain the circumstances. Um, and that White may emerge with a somewhat clean bill of health. Well, that's a very interesting story, you know, that Walsh didn't- By the way, I don't- uh, I'm just saying let me... Walsh didn't share, it, didn't share it with people. And oh. the rollout, instead, the rollout just looks really awkward and bad. And um, maybe the former Mrs. White will come forward and clear her ex-husband, but it's kind of a mess right now. It, it certainly is a mess. And it's a metaphor for the city of Boston. And what I mean by that is Walsh has been successful because he's been able to keep all of these balls in the air. COVID was the best thing that could have happened to him. 
It took everyone's attention away from affordable housing and the rotten state of Boston's public schools, which are probably the two most pressing issues the city is facing. Because quite understandably, you know, it's COVID, COVID, COVID. What will be very interesting is in the mayoral campaign to come, will the Boston public schools come under more intense scrutiny? Will the issue of affordable housing come up again? Just because I dealt with this a little bit when I was sitting in for Jim Browdy on Greater Boston recently, I have no idea how many of our listeners will have seen this segment, but the suggestion has been made that someone dropped a dime on Dennis White because they didn't like how open he seems to be in comparison with his predecessor to accepting civilian criticism of the way the BPD operates. And I interviewed, when I was guest hosting, Andrew Ryan, who had the lead byline on the story about this allegation from White's past. It's important that people know that Andrew Ryan said the Globe, which has been doing all this work on bad behavior by Boston police officers, they had the information in hand that yielded that story before Dennis White was named the new commissioner. He was named, according to Andrew Ryan, everyone was surprised. They looked for Dennis White in their trove of info, and they found a trail that they proceeded to follow, which yielded the story that took so many of us by surprise. It does not sound, based on what Andrew Ryan told me, like someone said, oh, Dennis White is now the commissioner. We're going to take him down because he's too pro-reform. That doesn't seem to be the case. And I feel like that's an important detail. Right. And I mean, the Globe has reported that, that it wasn't a dime drop. It was their own reporting. And, you know, I, I believe Andrew Ryan. Um, not to add to the, you know, the rumor slash speculation that we're trafficking in here, but I heard a slightly different version of what you said, Peter, and it involved after um, Gross, the trial balloon went up on Gross's behalf, whether or not he did it, that another mayoral campaign got nervous, dropped a dime on something involving Gross, and that Walsh didn't want this to be making headlines while he was going through his confirmation hearing and that he let him know that he wanted him out. I hadn't heard that, but that makes perfect sense. No, no, that makes perfect sense to me. None of us know the full story. Something's well, rotten in Denmark. Is that the saying we're looking for? No. Mm, <laughs> we yeah. That's an overstatement. We, it, we don't know the full story. No, no. But listen, referring to Shakespeare is usually right. <laughs> Shakespeare is usually right. I sure hope that that information finds the light of day somehow, because even if William Gross is no longer running the Boston Police Department, uh, if there is information like that out there, I'd argue that it's still newsworthy. Well, I think connecting the dots on what really happened in this transfer from one police commissioner to another is definitely newsworthy. Um, so. Yeah, let's step back to and look at Marty Walsh in general. You know, Walsh has a pretty checkered past history when it comes to some of his major appointments. Um, you know, let's look at his first search for a school superintendent. That blew up in his face when the search firm he hired delivered him, you, you know, the candidate who had been bounced out of um, Harvard School of Education, which, which ended up giving us 
Tommy Chang, Tommy Chang, who was a disastrous superintendent. Well, that being said, I think if he had run for a re-election, he would have won. Oh, of course. And his greatest legacy may be that by leaving, he will have hastened the movement to the first non-white, non-male mayor of Boston. So happy ending all around. <laughs> Joan, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. It's always a pleasure. Again, it was Peter's idea to get you, and I'm really glad we did. Thank you, guys. Good to see you. Thank you, Joan. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Joan Vinaki from the Boston Globe for taking the time to join us. And as always, to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are? At Kadzis, capital K. A-D-Z-I-S. We'll talk to you again in the very near future. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.